Hello, my name is Tapio Maseba, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 68. First, some headlines. In a follow from Episode 54, an EasyJet's data breach affecting 9 million customers, British Airways has been fined £20 million for its 2018 data breach affecting 400,000 customers by the Information Commissioner's Office. Quite a significant drop from its notice to fine the airline £183 million last year. It is still the ICO's largest fine to date. Next, UK PM Boris Johnson has told the UK to prepare for a no-deal Brexit. In another retail and real estate update, Retailers have only paid 13% of the rent due for this quarter, as variable lockdown restrictions cause uncertainty. However, in an interesting turn of events for retail, and a bet on luxury retail, Chanel is buying its London flagship store on Bond Street for £310 million, 30% above the asking price. In an update to episode 58 in Intu's administration, two Intu properties have found new asset managers. Into Mary Hill in the West Midlands is now managed by Landy, and Stokes the Pottery Centre will now be managed by APAM. Both will be rebranded in the near future and will seek to offer more than just retail. And finally, in an update to episode 56, the story of Unilever's restructuring, following the Dutch shareholders' approval in the last episode's headlines, Unilever's UK shareholders have also approved the plan to restructure this past week. The company plans to restructure on the 29th of November, but high court approval is still required with hearings set for the 23rd of October and the 2nd of November. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. This week's format is two longer reads and their follow-ups on stories we've recently covered. First, as promised, let's provide an update on the LVMH Tiffany dispute. Before we start, I do recommend listening to episode 66 for a full recap. It's a comprehensive summary of what's gone on between last November and now, between the two companies, and in my opinion, it's a pretty solid episode. With that said, let's provide a quick summary of where we were, before we get to where we are today. It started with episode 31, when we mentioned in a headline that LVMH had agreed to acquire Tiffany & Co. for $16.6 billion. Scadden advised LVMH, and Sullivan and Cromwell advised Tiffany. This was pre-pandemic. Episode 47 and 52 then mentioned that a number of M&A transactions were falling apart across sectors because of the pandemic. And in episode 56, we mentioned that there had been an inkling that LVMH may have been seeking to bring Tiffany back to the table to renegotiate the price. There was a silent hope that Tiffany would breach its debt covenants over the pandemic, which would have amounted to a material adverse effect for the purposes of their agreement. A material adverse effect clause is one of the few clauses a buyer can rely on to terminate a share purchase agreement, and as you may have guessed from its name, it requires the target company to have experienced a material and adverse effect to its business. Because of this very high bar, it is rather difficult to satisfy. But in episode 56, Tiffany avoided triggering a material adverse effect, or May, clause by announcing that they had successfully renegotiated their debt covenants, with Tiffany's CEO making specific mention to LVMH in this announcement, stating, I am confident that Tiffany's best days remain ahead of us, and I am excited we will be taking that journey with LVMH by our side. After that, it was pretty quiet. Episode 56 was released in the middle of June. 
the acquisition had an initial drop-dead date of the 24th of August. That date could be extended by the selling company to the 24th of November if necessary. And it was necessary because the deal still hadn't closed. Odd. On the 31st of August, LVMH's legal team wrote a letter to Tiffany saying they couldn't complete the acquisition until the 6th of January, long after the drop-dead date, which resulted in Tiffany filing a lawsuit against LVMH in Delaware on the 8th of September, pretty much accusing LVMH of dragging its feet until the deal expired. In the lawsuit, one example Tiffany used to detail the feet dragging was, at the date of filing the lawsuit, LVMH still hadn't even sought antitrust approval in the EU, thus breaching a covenant in the agreement to seek approval, quote, as promptly as practicable, end quote. Tiffany also claimed that no material adverse effect had occurred, and Tiffany projected higher earnings in the fourth quarter of 2020 compared to last year's fourth quarter, meaning the company was still in good financial health. Tiffany sought specific performance from the court, requiring LVMH to go through with the acquisition, and a declaration from the court that there had been no material adverse effect or any other ground for LVMH to break the agreement. The following day, LVMH announced an intention to countersue. In a press release titled, quote, LVMH intends to file a lawsuit against Tiffany as a result of crisis management, end quote. The most significant part of that press release was an allegation that a material adverse effect to the business did in fact occur, assumedly the pandemic, and that during the pandemic, Tiffany, quote, did not follow an ordinary course of business, end quote, because it distributed full dividends to its shareholders while the company was loss-making. Not too long after this press release, though, LVMH finally did submit the transaction to the European Commission for Antitrust Review, quote, as it is always stated it would do, end quote, to which Tiffany responded, quote, The speed with which LVMH acted after Tiffany filed its complaint in Delaware only underscores LVMH's delays and lack of compliance with the merger agreement over the prior months, end quote. And that's where we were. At the time, we awaited a decision from a judge in Delaware to decide whether the case should be expedited. And we also awaited LVMH filing the counterclaims. And so... An update on both of those fronts, the Delaware court has expedited the case, with a four-day trial set to begin on the 5th of January. And LVMH has now filed a countersuit. Let's talk about the countersuit first. It includes the same allegations in the press release. To summarize, the first claim is that a material adverse effect has occurred. LVMH's claim is that even though a pandemic is not explicitly mentioned in the May Clause, Because a pandemic was also not explicitly carved out in the clause, as a few events were, it can therefore be considered as such a material adverse effect. The second claim is that Tiffany breached a covenant in the agreement to operate in the ordinary course of business and to keep its business organization substantially intact. LVMH's reasoning is that this covenant was breached by Tiffany's director's decision to pay dividends as the company was loss-making. In a press release attached to the counterclaim, LVMH alleged, quote, No other luxury company in the world did so during this crisis. There are many examples of mismanagement detailed in the filing, including slashing capital and marketing investments and taking on additional debt, end quote. LVMH have also mentioned the letter received from the French government, as mentioned in episode 66, and have said they have kept up with their covenant to seek antitrust approval as promptly as practicable. Tiffany has responded by saying, quote, LVMH's case is doomed, and LVMH knows it, end quote. Messy. 
As for the case expedition, Tiffany wanted a hearing in November, LVMH wanted a hearing in March, and so January was a compromise decided by Judge Slites III in Delaware. Judge Slites, in setting the date, pleaded with the parties, quote, Perhaps there can be some productive discussions that can happen sooner than later that can be concluded to avoid litigation, end quote. Seems unlikely at this moment, but we'll see. And with that update, let's talk about it. Well, not much completely out of the ordinary has happened. In episode 66, I mentioned how two called-off deals ended relatively calmly and didn't need litigation. Those were the L. Brands and Sycamore Partners stake sale over Victoria's Secret and Covey and Partnery. But so far, this seems a little further from a settlement than even the previous week. It also kind of feels like bickering. Ultimately, this will be decided over points of law, and yet a number of updates we've been seeing lately are press releases to sway public opinion. And though that definitely makes everything spicy and entertaining, I think it's ultimately important to pay the most attention to the points of law. From my view, the pandemic being a material adverse change or effect would be a bit of a stretch in this scenario. The pandemic resulted in industry-wide complications, and though Tiffany suffered a loss in Q1, they also expect to out-earn last year's Q4 this year. And according to Tiffany, LVMH have been made aware of this long before the lawsuit. And of course, whichever judge ultimately decides on this will have far more legal knowledge than me, but LVMH's countersuit asks an interesting question about MAC and May clauses. If a clause specifically carves out scenarios that won't be considered as material and adverse, will the scenarios omitted from that list therefore count? Or is it on the buyer to draft an exhaustive list of what is material and adverse? And on the other point of law, the ordinary course of business covenant. That will be interesting too. Tiffany alleged that they haven't missed a dividend payment since 1987, including during the Great Recession, and they also alleged that they have a billion dollars in cash. And so, because they did something they've always done, have they conducted an ordinary course of business? Or should they have better responded to the pandemic by not distributing dividends? And does any of that matter if the business is still in good condition? That'll be up to the judge as well. So, that's where we are. And I'll admit it, it is indeed a little spicy, but however it's decided in January, and assumedly after an appeal in February, this whole ordeal will be an interesting marker for future M&A litigation stemming from the pandemic. Or, and it's a big or at the moment, they could still settle. The judge in Delaware has given them a few months to cool off, speak to each other, acknowledge that maybe they both said some things they don't mean, that they want to make this acquisition work. But you can understand both parties' stances. Tiffany obviously want to sell at the highest price after securing that price for their shareholders. LVMH don't want to pay pre-pandemic prices for a business hit by said pandemic. The only issue with the latter stance is the price was agreed on and the documents were signed, which is why we are where we are. And so, what started as a happy acquisition, drafted by Scadden and Sullivan and Cromwell, has since soured, resulting in both firms finding next steps for their clients through litigation and dispute resolution in general, all the while Scadden still have to seek antitrust approval on behalf of their buyer client, LVMH. With all that said, that's the update, and barring a settlement, we'll revisit this story in January. Credit for this story goes to Evan Clark, David Dawkins, James Fontanella-Khan, 
Alistair Gray, Sajid Indop, and LVMH. Next, let's talk about Epic Games and the battle versus Apple over Fortnite on the App Store. To begin, another episode plug. The last we spoke about this specific conflict was episode 63. I may be biased, but I recommend that episode too. But to provide a brief summary, this is a TMT, antitrust and litigation issue. The general issue is with digital marketplaces that also double as vendors in the same marketplace and how they should run those marketplaces and govern third-party vendors. And by govern, in this case, we're talking about commission fees and taxes within those marketplaces. Now, with that backdrop, the main parties today are Apple and Epic Games. In episode 63, we spoke about how Apple's App Store has a 30% tax applied to app developers for any purchases on the store, except for applications sold by Apple, of course. Apple also forbids vendors on the App Store from circumventing this tax. This has sparked conflict with sellers before. Namely, in episode 12 of the podcast, Spotify filed an antitrust complaint against Apple over the app tax, and in episode 60, the European Commission opened an antitrust investigation in response to this complaint. And similar to the LVMH Tiffany issue, the Spotify complaint had a legal dimension plus a PR dimension. Spotify launched a website you can still visit, timetoplayfair.com, where it detailed Spotify's issues with the App Store. Now, cue Epic Games, the developer and owner of Fortnite. Fortnite, pretty popular game, 2019 revenue of $1.8 billion, primarily relying on microtransactions. These microtransactions are purchases users of the game can make on whatever platform they play on, console, computer, or mobile phone. Any of those purchases done on an iPhone or iPad would mean the App Store would collect a 30% commission for facilitating the sale. And so, Epic Games decided to test the App Store rules, and by test them, I mean break them. They sold an item on the iPhone and iPad versions of Fortnite at two price points. You could either buy it through the App Store for $10, or directly through Epic's website for an apparent 20% discount at $8. But because that $8 price was not subject to the 30% app tax, they'd be making $1 more. And so they breached the App Store's terms of service by doing this, and as a result, Fortnite was removed from the App Store. As soon as Fortnite was removed from the App Store, Epic Games went on the offensive, using both legal and PR means. Legally, Epic Games filed an antitrust lawsuit against Apple in California asking the court for specific performance. The specific performance requested would be an order requiring Apple to end the 30% tax. PR-wise, Epic Games started the hashtag FreeFortnite and also published an animated short titled 1980Fortnite as a parody of an old Apple ad that Apple made to paint themselves as revolutionaries challenging IBM's information technology monopoly when the first Mac was released in 1984, of course as a nod to George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. And that was where we were. What's happened since then? Well, a few things. First, Apple countersued. That was bound to happen. Apple's introductory statement in the counterclaim is also very spicy. It reads, quote, Epic's lawsuit is nothing more than a basic disagreement over money. Although Epic portrays itself as a modern corporate Robin Hood, 
In reality, it is a multi-billion dollar enterprise that simply wants to pay nothing for the tremendous value it derives from the App Store, end quote. It's a rather long introductory statement, link in description, but a quick summary of it is best illustrated by quoting The Godfather, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, best summarizes this introductory statement when he says, Bonacera, Bonacera, what have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? The statement details how many App Store benefits Epic Games has used, how Apple helped promote Fortnite with every update, and how many downloads the app had. The statement also claims that at some point this year, Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney wrote to Apple, asking to be exempted from the app tax and for a right to redirect in-app purchases directly to Epic Games to circumvent the App Store entirely. And it was once Apple rejected this request, quote, Epic resorted to self-help and subterfuge, end quote, referring to the breaching of terms of service, the media campaign, and lawsuit. It's also worth noting that Apple challenged Epic's allegations of anti-competitive practices, responding, quote, There is nothing anti-competitive about charging a commission for others to use one's service. Many platforms, including Epic's own app, do just that, end quote. All the spice aside, Apple's counterclaim is legally over breach of contract, namely the license agreement every developer signs to release apps on the App Store. Further, Apple and the counterclaim asked the court for a trial by jury and for damages for the funds lost as a result of Epic circumventing the App Store. Next, a number of app developers, including Epic Games, created the, quote, Coalition for App Fairness, end quote, a group with the aim to, quote, create a level playing field for app businesses and give people freedom of choice on their devices, end quote. Other members of the coalition include Spotify, tracking app Tile, and music streamer Deezer. This kind of seems like app developers unionizing versus Apple and their app tax. Other than that, and most importantly for our purposes, there have been preliminary hearings between Epic and Apple before a judge in California, primarily over injunctions. For the sake of our story, the most important aspect of the hearings was Epic's request for a preliminary injunction that would reinstate Fortnite on the App Store for the duration of the trial. Judge Rogers, presiding over the hearing, was not convinced that that would be necessary. In fact, in the order denying this preliminary injunction, Judge Rogers points out that there is already a class action lawsuit against Apple on behalf of all developers, so for Epic Games, quote, the current predicament is of its own making, end quote. In fact, the court offered to hold the 30% app tax or commission fee in escrow while Epic Games continued to follow the App Store's rules over the duration of the trial, and Epic Games refused this arrangement, resulting in the court considering that, quote, Epic Games is not principally concerned with iOS consumers, but rather harbors other tactical motives, end quote. Further, Judge Rogers also points out that Apple's position as both marketplace and seller is not unique to the other marketplaces Fortnite finds itself on. Specifically, Rogers states, quote, Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft all operate similar walled gardens or closed platform models as Apple, whereby the hardware, operating system, digital marketplace, and in-app purchases are all exclusive to the platform owner, end quote. Regardless of these comments, Judge Rogers also called this trial the, quote, trial over the future of the digital frontier, end quote, and suggested the case be considered on its merits next July. 
Judge Rogers also suggested a trial by jury, but Apple and Epic submitted a joint statement expressing their preference of a trial by judge, also known as a bench trial. It's also worth noting that when asked how long each party's lawyers would want before trial, Epic's counsel suggested they need four to six months, Apple's counsel suggested more time for discovery, wanting the trial in 10 months. With July about nine months away, it looks as if Apple will be the happier of the two with more time to prepare. And that's pretty much it. No Fortnite on the App Store till July at the earliest, unless, of course, Apple and Epic Games settle out of court. And with all that said, let's talk about it. A few things I'd like to point out. First, the importance of this case. In the preliminary injunction hearing, the judge says something early on that best highlights what this case is. Judge Rogers says to resolve this dispute, the court must apply a number of antitrust laws, quote, enacted more than a century ago to a technology context where lawyers and economists can merely hypothesize about the future of the digital frontier, end quote. I can't say it any better that this dispute, beyond just being a dispute between two multi-billion dollar companies, will provide an updated interpretation of competition laws in a modern, lucrative, and controversial context. And this is a challenge that is oft mentioned in this podcast, which is regulation trying to keep up with tech. And in this context, it's now the judiciary's turn. And so, whatever the ruling will be, it could truly define a very significant subsector of the TMT sector for the next generation. Next, it's worth mentioning once again the balance between PR and law. As I said in the previous story, the press releases are fun to read. To speak colloquially, they are a little messy, but don't really have much of an effect in front of a judge. So much so that the judge in the preliminary hearing saw through it by labeling most of Epic's actions as actions done with, quote, tactical motives, end quote. So why do people bother? Well, in episode 63, we mentioned that the whole free Fortnite stance was probably an attempt to get Apple to fold without needing to go to trial. Apple even point this out, mentioning that Epic tried to paint itself as Robin Hood. Meanwhile, it too has a digital marketplace where it also takes a commission on sales. Regardless, controlling one's own narrative also has some importance, especially if you're a public company like Tiffany, LVMH, Epic, and Apple all are. While you're fighting in court, there are shareholders you are trying to maintain confidence with. And so, a media campaign does have its uses for public confidence and public opinion, but may not have much effect if the party does not want to settle, and if there is no jury to convince with rhetoric. And on that point, it is a bit curious as to why both Apple and Epic decided to opt for a bench trial and not a trial by jury. Personally, I would have thought that Epic would want a jury, considering everything they've done in this dispute to drum up public support. As for Apple, I'm equally perplexed, considering they requested a trial by jury in the counterclaim. If I had to guess, and this is truly a guess, it's possible that both parties want true engagement with the law by a learned judge? potentially for more clarity in the future? Am I being naive by thinking that these companies ultimately want what's best for the future of digital marketplaces? I would also mention that a bench trial is potentially faster and therefore cheaper in terms of legal costs, but again, multi-billion dollar companies that have already come this far. And so, I'd be curious to hear what you think. Why bench and not jury? And in considering why, 
you too will be able to brainstorm the different tactics lawyers can use for their clients in disputes. I'll also concede that this is also a bit of a moot point in a UK context considering that an option for a jury in a civil claim is seldom available, but it's still a thought exercise worth having. And to link the two longer reads together, both parties in this story now have nine months to prepare for trial. Compare that with LVMH and Tiffany who have about three months. Best of luck to their litigation teams. I picture a lot of sleepless nights. So, to sum up, that's an abridged summary of the epic Apple dispute, and once again, barring a settlement, we'll catch up on this dispute in due time as well. And other than the bench trial versus jury question, the only other question I have to close is, how do you feel about the 30% app tax or commission? Should a digital marketplace be allowed to charge commission to operate? And if the answer is yes, should there be a limit on the percentage? And how should that be determined? Credit for this story goes to Heim Gartenberg, Edvard Pedersen, James Vincent, Nick Statt, and Jay Peters. So, those were the longer reads. And though they cover stories we've already visited, they provide case studies on some pretty pressing issues. LVMH and Tiffany will show us quite a lot about a topic we'll continue hearing about coming out of the pandemic. And it's about how buyers and sellers resolve disputes coming out of an M&A transaction post or mid-pandemic. So as this dispute escalates and escalates, we're being shown a model of the potential worst-case scenario, where neither party is willing to renegotiate or settle. As for Epic and Apple, the judge in the preliminary hearings best summarizes it as the future of the digital frontier. Huge ramifications in TMT. This either confirms the status quo or drastically changes online marketplaces even beyond gaming. If implementing a tax for third parties is against antitrust laws, that can make a number of clauses in thousands and thousands of terms of service no longer valid. It could also make a number of these walled gardens raise their walls even higher. Without a financial incentive to host third parties on the marketplace, why host them? This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description. And the podcast Instagram page is at comawarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D. If you prefer to contact me there or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week. If for whatever reason you're still listening after the outro, you get to hear this little Easter egg at the end. This episode was a little unique in that there was no completely new longer read. If you'd like more follow-up episodes in the future and think it helps you build case studies, do let me know. If you'd like fewer follow-up episodes in the future, let me know too. Ultimately, the podcast is for you, so your positive feedback is not only appreciated, but also necessary. Otherwise, thank you for listening. And please do rate the podcast. It definitely goes a long way.